Hi there. Before we start this podcast, it will be misguided of us to not address the distressing scenes of the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine. It is difficult to fathom that 3,000 kilometres away on the EU's most easterly border, the people of Ukraine are faced with the horrors of what is happening in their country. The EU must continue to take the necessary action to guarantee the independence, sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ukraine within its internationally recognised borders. We at EM Ireland stand in solidarity with the innocent Ukrainian people who don't deserve any of this. Dealing with conflict and war was the driving force that underpinned the creation of the European Union. And as the late John Hume once said in Strasbourg in 1998, the EU is the best example, as we have learned in the history of the world, of conflict resolution. Hi there, you're listening to European Movement Ireland's Just to Chats podcast series, where we take a deep dive on all things Ireland and Europe by sitting down and having a chat with a wide selection of guests from Ireland and across Europe and indeed beyond. My name is Ryan Liebes and I'm delighted to be joined today by my colleague, Deputy CEO Stephen O'Shea, to go in conversation with Erwin Furere. To give a little bit of background on Erwin, Erwin Furere is Associate Senior Research Fellow at the Centre for European Policy Studies. During his 38-year career with the European institutions, he was the first to assume joint responsibilities of EU Special Representative and Head of Delegation in the EU External Service when he was appointed in this double capacity in North Macedonia, the first Head of Delegation in South Africa, and the first Head of Delegation in Mexico and Cuba. He was also awarded the Order of Good Hope Grand Officer by President Nelson Mandela in 1998. However, where we would like to start today is about Irwin's experience around the time of Ireland joining the EEC in 1973 and the referendum in 1972, which led to Irwin becoming one of the first Irish stagiaires in the European Union. So, first of all, Irwin, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Brilliant. So, where we would love to start is if you could help us set the scene for us. We would love to know more about what life was like back in Ireland in the late 1960s, early 70s. And can you basically tell us where you were living then and what was an average day like? Yes. Well, I was uh, in Dublin uh, at the UCD doing uh, my law studies after I had been in secondary school in Turnier College. Uh, And um, so this was a time when, of course, uh, Ireland was basically in transition, if you like. It was gradually moving uh, towards uh, opening up uh, the country, which had been closed for for so long, uh, and uh, looking towards Europe. And of course, it was very much uh, uh, stimulated by uh, the policies uh, of uh, uh, the Taoiseach, uh, Le Mas, uh, as well as uh, Ken Whitaker, who had promoted these uh, economic development plans uh, and uh, so, uh, and of course, we had Ireland had applied uh, to join uh, the European Economic Community already in 1961, but that failed because of the uh, General de Gaulle's veto on on the UK. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, the the eyes were looking towards uh, Europe, but it, it, the discussion about Europe was very much confined to mainly the establishment, if you like. And so a group of us in the university felt that we needed to uh, expand uh, the interest, the debate 
on Europe, uh, and that's why we set up the uh, Irish Students European Association in 1967. Uh, and so in that context, uh, we organized uh, activities, uh, lectures in schools, secondary schools, and of course we worked closely with the European movement at the time, Dennis Corboy, uh, and all the, the uh, other colleagues, and some of us then were elected onto the executive committee of the European movement, so it was very much a, a partnership effort. Um, but we, we really felt that there was a, a a, a huge uh, emphasis needed, greater emphasis needed in broadening the debate to bring in uh, groups all over Ireland. And uh, and then, of course, in that context, we organized this uh, European mm. seminar in 1970. And it's exactly that seminar that I would like us to maybe go into a little bit more detail. So um, just to let our listeners know, the 10th European seminar happened in Dublin, 1970, and the title of the seminar was Europe, Community or Classes. So what I would love for you to, to, to maybe help us with here is to explain that debate and that conversation that was having then from both sides um, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the debate. So um, you yourself, Erwin, are quoting the Irish Independent on the 31st of March 1970. So this would have been the first day or the day before it started. Um, and you were saying the future of Europe in a world role depended on the willingness to develop a more communal form of decision making and renounce all forms of domination, especially the concealed economic domination of the underdeveloped world. Did you find that this was um, a common, um, did you find that people were in, mainly in agreement with this or wh where were people's main concerns and thoughts during this uh, seminar? Well, it was part of a, a huge uh, debate uh, that the seminar stimulated uh, on uh, not only the role of Europe in the world, but also uh, the role of individual member states and the organization of decision-making within the European economic community, because already you had uh, the naysayers, those who were against, uh, who were saying that basically, if Ireland were to join, it would be shifting decision-making to Brussels and Ireland would have no more say in its, in its affairs. We were very fortunate uh, to have some excellent speakers, starting with Gareth Fitzgerald, uh, and he set the scene uh, very much uh, in, uh, in, on, on these issues where he emphasized the importance of economic planning and the role of um, making sure that decisions are taken at the level where the people are most affected by those decisions rather than in a remote center far away. If you think of it, uh, he was very much uh, ahead of his time because uh, now we have the citizens' assemblies, uh, which uh, have been uh, used as an, the ones that were developed in Ireland in the last year that have been used as an example in this whole debate uh, on the Conference on the Future of, of Europe. So um, the, the advantage of this seminar, and it was the first of its kind uh, that had uh, brought together uh, over 100 students from all over Europe uh, and exposed uh, the Irish audience to many issues that, you know, had, weren't considered. Uh, there was also the question of neutrality and the role of Ireland in that. And that, of course, was uh, a very uh, uh, difficult uh, debate uh, during the uh, ref referendum in 1972. 
Um, and uh, so we, we were really very pleased that um, the seminar, while it didn't come to conclusions, but it really generated mm. this debate uh, in the media, in the student population and uh, further afield, and also among the politicians, although unfortunately, apart from Gareth Fitzgerald and one or two others, uh, not many mm. uh, came. And I think that this was a reflection of the fact that there was still not enough uh, debate uh, about uh, Europe and the role that Ireland could play in Europe. And and if in one of the articles, so this was in the Irish Times on the 3rd of April 1970, and, it, and I'd be curious to know your thoughts on it, Erwin. Um, the quote is this, there is a deal of fatalism about our application to join the European community. Britain has, Britain has applied, therefore we must. If Britain does not, that will create a new situation in the light of which the national interests will have to be reviewed. How much in the debate was the reliance on Britain such a key component to us potentially joining in 73? Well, I, I think there was a, a division of opinion because you had some who said we are so economically tied to Britain that we have to follow whatever they do. And, you know, there was the common saying if uh, Britain gets a cold, we get the flu. Uh, and we were so uh, economically tied. But again, Gareth Fitzgerald uh, had this extraordinary vision and uh, he so many times, and of course, not just at the seminar, but after the seminar, emphasized that if Europe, if Ireland wanted to assume an identity which was not so tied to the United Kingdom that uh, we had to take our own destiny in our own hands, and joining the European Union would give us that greater freedom uh, to deal with Britain and also to diversify our exports and to make sure that we were not uh, so tied uh, to uh, the United Kingdom. But you had others, of course, who said, no, we must be careful, and they were much more cautious. Mm. Uh, and of course, all these arguments uh, played out during the referendum campaign where the uh, anti-EEC were very vocal, very strong. Um, and so there was a lot of work required to refute uh, and to push back on some of those arguments that were made uh, regarding the Ireland's uh, application to join. Mm. And if I could bring in Stephen um, into this, I, I suppose mainly about your observations about what Erwin's going um, or what Erwin is talking about, about some of the conversations that were happening in '72 around Ireland joining the EC. Are they topics? Do they are they topics that we still see today as conversations under a different light? Well, I'm, I'm struck, Erwin, that you mention neutrality um, mm. because that is something that is starting to become topical again and has dominated every referendum or many referendum campaigns uh, since then. I'm thinking particularly back to uh, the, the, the Lisbon campaign where um, Ireland's neutrality was uh, legally guaranteed by the European Council before the, that second referendum. Um, so that's one thing that struck me um, as something that that is still topical and relevant today when we talk about European integration. Um, so maybe if you address that a little bit, but I'm also interested as well in what were the arguments among the public or what was public sentiment at the time? Was it very much a sort of a, a rational economic uh, outlook or was there any excitement about, about what uh, membership of the EU may, may, may bring? Well, there was a lot of emotion uh, in the debate, and those who took part in the debate 
uh, and uh, the emotion was based on uh, sometimes, uh, you know, realities that were not realities. They were more fantasies about the dangers of Ireland becoming part of uh, the this broader grouping and that we would be pushed into uh, accepting uh, defense commitments and so on, which understandably uh, people were concerned about. Uh, and um, at the same time, uh, I think there was a realization of those uh, in authority that we couldn't be politically neutral. We had to take a stand on those issues uh, which are at the basic foundation of European integration, the human rights, uh, and all of those uh, freedoms uh, that uh, we have up to now taken for granted, perhaps, and which were embodied in the Helsinki Final Act, uh, which was signed in August 1975, uh, an exercise where Ireland was part of, uh, because it had joined in the community in 1973. Uh, and uh, yes, the debate is still there uh, about neutrality, and uh, it's a, a very sensitive one because of the NATO component. But again, I think uh, at the end of the day, uh, Ireland cannot sit on the fence and not take a stand. Uh, and I think in the case of the terrible tragedy that, that is unfolding today, with uh, Russia's uh, unprovoked uh, and totally unacceptable invasion of Ukraine um, shows us that we cannot, and we are, I think, very vocal, fortunately, in taking a stand and in, in supporting all the sanctions uh, and so on. Uh, and I think we, we, at some point in time, we will also have to uh, face the discussion about uh, involvement of um, defence mm. uh, forces and so on. Ireland has been a very uh, strong um, and very active in UN peacekeeping, uh, and we are recognised as such uh, in our defence uh, of uh, human rights that around the world. Uh, and I think this is uh, very much to our um, to our favour, uh, and uh, it's something which uh, we should be very proud of. And if I can bring you back, Orwin, to a point that Stephen made about general engagement and, I suppose, excitement about the prospect of um, joining the, the, the European community. Could I ask you for your memories of the 10th of May 1972 and, I suppose, when the referendum happened and the results were known? And the second part of my question is, if we, let's say, take the early six months of 1973, once we became a member um, of the European community, what was the general... How do I word it? How, how was the dealings that was happening with Ireland's membership in the early days? Were the people back home realising or was it very much something that happened and it was something that wasn't uh, really known by the people on the street too much in the early stages? Well, my personal contribution to the uh, whole campaign was a very modest one because I was already working in Brussels after being the uh, stag uh, stagiaire uh, trainee uh, in the European Commission, uh, I then joined the uh, Max Konstam Institute for European Integration. Uh, so I was a research assistant. So I was very much in the bubble of the whole mm. process of, of European integration, European movement. It was a very exciting time. We felt we were pioneers in, in this period. So I did come back now and then uh, to help 
in the campaign. Um, I have one anecdote uh, that I recall. I organised a, a debate um, in the west of Ireland uh, in the small parish where um, our home is in Cladderduff, uh, very close to Cleggan, beyond Clifton. It's the last post before you hit the Atlantic. <laughs> Uh, and um, uh, so this was a few months before the referendum, and uh, we uh, uh, had a representative from uh, the anti-EU uh, campaign, uh, and we had put out about 50 chairs expecting <laughs> large audience. In fact, only two people turned up, but they were the most important people because it was the postman and the priest. <laughs> so uh, we we felt that relieved that at least they would spread the message. Uh, and um, but yes, it was uh, a, a a tough time because uh, there was definitely a, a debate, a public debates, and so on. But perhaps uh, there wasn't a, a huge mass of enthusiasm, mm. even though. The percentage who voted in favour and the percentage who actually voted was very strong. Mm. It was really phenomenal, uh, and seventy percent turnout, if I'm not mistaken, and over eighty percent voting in favour. Uh, so, but it's really the whole uh, process of joining began to sink in much later. Okay, when groups started visiting Brussels. Mm. Uh, and this was a very good, uh, at the time, organization, uh, number of both the, the European institutions, European movement, all that, were promoting visits of, um, of uh, local communities, of uh, uh, the um, women's organizations, uh, visiting to see the institutions for themselves and bring back home then, you know, what was happening and that Ireland was was part of of this uh, process, and of course, as regards myself, uh, I after doing the um, entrance exam um, uh, in 1972, uh, I joined the institutions on the 1st of July 1973 mm. as a young. Um, the, Bottom level, as all of all of us that are of our age joined at that time, and we just worked our way up. And I, as I said, we felt really like we were we had this mission. Mm. You know, it wasn't just a job; it was a mission that we were working on. European integration was something extraordinary, uh, and uh, it was to promote uh, these fundamental values of countries working together. Uh, for common goals, uh, and uh, so we, we felt very privileged to be part of that process. Yeah, because I really wanted to talk about your time as a stagiaire in Brussels, um, and I'm very curious to know, it's, it's amazing to hear the sort of the pioneer sense that you had, and I can absolutely properly picture that um, in my head. What was the sort of reception you would have got from um, other member states, stagiaires, and other people in Brussels? What was the relationship that the Irish stagiaires had with, with the others? Very, very strong, very positive. I mean, they had this romantic vision of Ireland, of course, of course, uh, but which we didn't uh, undermine. We, we promoted it. Uh, I was elected uh, president of the committee of stagiaires, uh, the first Irish person, I guess, because I was the first Irish uh, to a stagiaire to be uh, appointed. And and at that time, it was the time when the commission was gradually 
extending the trainee uh, mm. um, exercise to applicant countries, so UK, Denmark, Norway, and, and Ireland. Uh, so it was an extraordinary time, uh, and as I said, you know, we, we felt we were pioneers. We also had a great time. Uh, I was organizing uh, visits to the institutions, uh, the parliament, uh, we went to Berlin, I organized a lot of parties, of course, uh, <laughs> and uh, Guinness uh, provided uh, so on. So it was you had the cultural dimension and you had the political dimension, and mm. there was a, a lot of interest in uh, in Ireland. Uh, and um, I'd say because Ireland is a small country, mm. like Denmark, uh, and uh, how would we? fit in to this broader grouping and, and that. So uh, it was, um, there were a lot of uh, tough challenges, but I think Ireland uh, politically, of course, played its role very significantly at a very early stage in assuming the presidency of the council uh, and uh, at, at several successive periods. Yeah, um, and Stephen, if I can bring you in at this point, because uh, I'd just be curious um, to know your thoughts on, um, as someone who has, of course, been in Brussels, is there? Do you think there's a sense of uh, Irish people when we're over there and we're working with the Commission or working in the Commission of a sense of those that have gone before and that we're following on a sort of a, a pathway and there's a sort of a, a legacy building to our to our Brussels work? Yeah, I think there's definitely um, uh, a, a recognition and a pride in the fact that Irish officials have traditionally done very well uh, and reached senior levels uh, in the institutions and there is an awareness of that um, and an awareness of that legacy, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that, you know, creates a kind of, you know, spirit de corps among not only those Irish people working in the institutions, but the Irish who are working in the broader sphere of the institutions as well, be it in think tanks or public affairs or whatever. And I'm always struck by the level at which they remain connected with each other through, mm. you know, informal, formal organizations, social events. There is a real sense of community, I think, mm. among the Irish people Absolutely. in Brussels. But Aaron, what I was one thing I was interested in is, well, actually two things that I was interested in is, to get maybe a flavour of the issues that you started working on when you walked in through the doors of the mm -hmm. institutions. And also, you know, coming from Dublin to Brussels at that time, or from Ireland to Brussels at that time, what, what were the changes, what were the things that you noticed? Or the differences, rather? Yes, yes. Well, uh, there were a lot, but as you point out, you know, Ireland... Um, because we've always had this tradition of traveling far away. Uh, you had all these um, uh, social workers in Central America, in Africa. Uh, and so it's very much part of our DNA, I think, to be exposed to other cultures and all of that. Uh, and uh, for me personally, uh, it was, um, as I mentioned, an extraordinary period. And because I, I was, um, you know, elected as president of the stagiaires, and then when I uh, when I joined the institutions, I was secretary of the Irish Club, and so we were, you know, organising lots of activities and bringing together the Irish community, but opening up uh, to uh, exposing 
ourselves to all these different cultures and, and traditions. Uh, and Brussels became a melting pot for all these um, different uh, uh, um, people coming from the different countries. Uh, and then, of course, uh, you know, that developed. I, I only spent 10 years in uh, Brussels because my I felt I wanted to work in the field. You know, I had this, I guess, maybe very idealistic, but missionary uh, approach to my work. I've, and so um, I, I moved out then and I spent most of my career in the uh, EU's external mm -hmm. service. Well, that leads perfectly onto the next part. So thank you very much for that, that lovely transition, because I wanted to talk about um, jumping ahead to your role as EU Special Representative and head a delegation in the EU External Service um, to countries such as North Macedonia between 2005 and 2011, South Africa between 1994 and 1998, and the first head of delegation in Mexico and Cuba in 1989 to 1992. So two questions as such, Erwin, if that's okay. The first one is perhaps a little bit of an unfair question because it's so vast, but what are your standout memories from, from your work in, in terms of um, external service? And then the second question is how important to you and have you found in your work is the EU's relationship with um, non-member states? Yes. Well, when I was posted abroad, my first posting was to the Delegation for Relations with Latin America, which at that time was based in Caracas. It was one of the few so-called democracies. Uh, the rest, all the other countries were under dictatorships, the colonels in Argentina, Pinochet in Chile, etc. So from Caracas, we, we, we were basically representing the European community. And this was a time when uh, the European community was expanding its diplomatic presence abroad and was developing its foreign policy. And I was very lucky to be in Central America precisely at the time when Ireland assumed the presidency of the European Council in 1984. And we had a very distinguished uh, foreign minister, Peter Barry, uh, at the time. Uh, and uh, he, uh, together with his colleagues, uh, really spearheaded a, a strong uh, foreign policy role for the European Union in Central America, precisely at the time when there was a civil war, when uh, the US, of course, were not happy to see Europe meddling in what they called their back garden. But as uh, was said by Peter Barry and others, uh, Europe's approach is not anti-US, it's to promote democracy uh, in uh, Central America uh, and to try to rid the region of the authoritarian regimes that were uh, were there. Uh, so that really, for me, showed that the European Union uh, had a huge role to play. Uh, and of course, that has expanded even more because of uh, its economic power uh, and um, the fact that it is called upon to assume uh, important uh, role uh, then in, in Mexico and Cuba. And uh, the, South Africa probably was, for me, the most, I think, extraordinary uh, experience mm. because I arrived there to set up the first EU mission precisely at the time when Nelson Mandela was elected president. So I was there witnessing at close quarters uh, the whole transition from the apartheid uh, regime uh, to the democracy 
that uh, Nelson Mandela uh, epitomized uh, in his uh, you know, role after spending 27 years in jail, coming out and uh, promoting peace and reconciliation. And never once a word of revenge uh, would cross his lips. I mean, such an extraordinary uh, example. Uh, and of course, uh, we've seen it replicated uh, in other circumstances, such as John Hume, uh, in Northern Ireland, uh, Václav Havel, and many others. Uh, and so Mandela was, that was really extraordinary. And also I was very uh, privileged to uh, support the, uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission headed by Archbishop Desmond Tutu. The European Union was uh, the largest contributor to the uh, transition process in, uh, from the international community in South Africa, we had uh, a, a budget of over 150, 130 million euros a year to help the transition process. Uh, so that was extraordinary. Uh, and uh, I really uh, will always remember that. Uh, and of course, I, in my subsequent postings in the Western Balkans, where we are still now facing some very fragile uh, political situations uh, where you have this multi-ethnic communities, uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina, you know, who don't get on and so on. Uh, the the uh, experience, the example of Mandela is still a, a great inspiration for reconciliation and uh, the need to, to work together, to find uh, common ground for working together. So all of those experiences. Uh, and then towards the end, I I worked for the Irish government during the Irish chairmanship of the OSCE, mm. Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, where I was responsible for the Transnistrian settlement process. And then I, you know, did contributed to some of the mediation work also in Ukraine with the Matia Tisari Foundation. So, yeah, I think all of this work is more than ever necessary now. And uh, I, I think, I hope that the European Union will be able to continue this important role of promoting um, reconciliation uh, uh, throughout the world. I, I actually didn't realize, Erwin, that you had worked in Ukraine. Is that yes, yes, yes. What was in, your experience uh, of it? As after a... working with the, after the Irish chairmanship of the OSCE 2012, uh, then I was asked to work uh, with uh, Mati Atisari and his foundation on mediation. Uh, and so we traveled, we went to Ukraine on uh, a number of occasions, uh, together with uh, a number of politicians who had been, very, uh, Bertie Hearn was one of them who came. Uh, Jeffrey Donaldson also came. He has this Causeway Institute, uh, which was promoting reconciliation. Uh, and he uh, presented the, the Northern Ireland experience. Uh, so it was really fascinating. And the idea of these meetings in uh, Ukraine was to try to bring together the representatives of Donbass together with uh, well, the people, the representatives in, in Kiev uh, to uh, find a common ground. Sadly, all of this work now is up in smoke with this uh, terrible uh, tragedy which is unfolding. And I, I really fear for what's going to happen to, to the country, but it doesn't, 
It doesn't uh, reduce the fact that uh, mediation and conflict resolution is so fundamental mm. uh, to the work of the European Union. And I, I suppose, Stephen, on that, on mediation and conflict resolution, is the current situation in Ukraine really bringing home to people, European Union citizens, of how important the diplomatic work the EU does outside of its borders really is? I'm struck by the... Um I suppose I shouldn't be surprised, but I am struck by the level of engagement and the level of emotion in, you know, people right across. I mean, outside my house in Ringsend, two doors down, is they're flying a Ukrainian flag. Mm. Um, so this has really struck a chord, I, yes, I, I think, yes. with people. Um, and and it's, you know, people are, you know, rightly and uh, emotionally, I, I think, um, invested uh, in in what happens over the you know coming weeks weeks and months, I'm I'm interested, Erwin. You 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 have kind of seen a lot of the this the nexus of these issues, I suppose, firsthand over your career. I'm struck by the fact that uh, you were involved in the conference on security and cooperation in Europe in Helsinki back in 1975, uh, which you know I suppose was. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I suppose was that first structured effort to try and engage with Indeed. with the Soviet Union as it was then. You mentioned uh, uh, Moldova, obviously in 2012, Ukraine, and you 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 spent time working on Eastern European issues in in the interim. So so you have been you know sort of close to that. Mm. Uh, I suppose you know that dividing line, um, and I'm I'm just interested in what perspective that gives you perhaps on the current situation? Mm. Well, um, I think, as I said, it doesn't, uh, the, the, this terrible invasion uh, uh, unprovoked by uh, Putin uh, is uh, something which probably even emphasizes even more the critical importance of international diplomacy uh, and the need for, for uh, finding uh, common ground uh, through diplomacy, through mediation. Um, when I uh, was involved, it was actually in Geneva, the uh, negotiations to for uh, concluding the Helsinki Final Act, which was then signed on the 1st of August 1975 in Helsinki. Uh, it was uh, an extraordinary moment because uh, you had uh, sitting around the table represented from the Soviet Union who were very uh, reluctant to agree to anything that spoke of uh, human contacts between citizens uh, across the, the region uh, or security guarantees or ec even economic cooperation, although they tended to be less reluctant on economic cooperation than on the human dimension. But uh, nevertheless, despite that, uh, and thanks to very strong pressure from the European community, which was developing its human rights policy in the early 70s, um, we achieved uh, something quite remarkable uh, during those uh, three years of negotiations in Geneva uh, to uh, the signing uh, ceremony in Helsinki. Uh, and um, where you had sitting around the table uh, the U.S. president, Canada, uh, USSR, and all uh, the other countries, 35 at that time. Uh, and uh, so uh, it was remarkable. 
Now, I think it again emphasizes even more uh, that we need to uh, return to that uh, and we need to return to that system of cooperation. Uh, but unfortunately, you have in uh, Putin a leader who doesn't understand, who doesn't believe in uh, open uh, democratic societies and is determined to uh, wipe out any attempt in his neighborhood uh, for uh, a, a society uh, different to what he has uh, established in, in Russia. And of course, the um, misinformation campaigns that are perpetrated uh, are an appalling example of uh, his uh, hold uh, on society in, in Russia and his attempt to do the same thing in, in Ukraine. And he wouldn't stop there. In Moldova, you have Transnistria, mm -hmm. which is um, a very small a strip of land, uh, half a million uh, people uh, who uh, do not, um, who are sort of claim they are independent, it's a, little bit, a little bit like the situation in Abkhazia, South Ossetia and Georgia. Uh, and this was following the breakup of the Soviet Union in uh, the early 90s. So, you know, if he goes, if the Russians go into Odessa, that's next. So it's really uh, a, a huge challenge facing the European Union. We have, I think, seen an extraordinary uh, sense of unity, uh, unity of purpose uh, within the European Union, which we had not seen before. Mm. Uh, so this is perhaps, if there is a silver lining in this terrible uh, conflict, it is the fact that the European Union has come out united uh, in its condemnation, in its sanctions, uh, and whatever it can do. And I think this is a very positive development for the future, because there's no doubt that foreign policy decision-making in the European Union has been very weak because of the unanimity rule. And this impedes, uh, this has impeded in the, in the past, for example, uh, the EU uh, adopting any resolution condemning human rights violations in Hong Kong, because you would have Hungary, who doesn't want to take a negative position vis-a-vis -vis China and all that. But now we see that's changing, uh, and uh, hopefully this sense of unity will really uh, ensure that uh, the European Union will be able to assume that uh, political role at the world stage that it should have because of its economic weight. Mm. I'm just really struck by, the, by the, the unity comment that you're making, Owen, especially as someone who has, from Ireland's membership starting in 73, that you're struck that this is, am I correct to say that you this is the most united you've seen the, the European Union and its member states as at the moment um, and to even look at that kind of 50 years as a, as a whole um, and again the conversations that we're having and the topics that people are, are, are discussing um, where have you felt has been the, the changes and the similarities in the conversations that Irish people are having but also that the European Union are, are having over the 50 years and the other question then for you, um, if you don't mind, is what are your reflections on Ireland specifically and how Ireland has changed in the, in the 50 years since membership? 
Well, to take up that last question, I, I think that, uh, of course, Ireland has developed in, in so many ways, in an extraordinary way. It's completely now a different society to what it was when it joined uh, in 1973. Uh, and, and we are playing a very, very active role within the European Union. Uh, I think Ireland assumed the presidency I think seven times mm -hmm. uh, almost, or if not more, at critical moments uh, and did it very well. So I think this is, again, a reflection of our capacity to contribute to, uh, uh, to uh, the European Union integration process, but also to, broad, uh, to world events uh, further, further afield. Um, I think one area perhaps where uh, the European Union has been very weak in the recent times um, has been uh, the failure to push back sufficiently strongly uh, to those attempts by, for example, Poland or Hungary, uh, undermining some of the fundamental values uh, that are underpinned the European integration process, mm. uh, the uh, role of free media, uh, independent judiciary, etc. Um, issues that we took for granted, and perhaps we were too complacent uh, after a certain period. We, we felt that no one could dare question those fundamental values that underpin the European integration since its foundation in, after the Second World War. But there it happened, and I regret that the European Commission was very slow because it does have the instruments, the treaties provide for instruments uh, to um, to uh, bring legal proceedings against those countries that uh, uh, could be undermining those fundamental values. And of course, there is the treaty um, article whereby voting rights can be withdrawn. Um, understandably, the European Union institutions don't want to go that far, but nevertheless, because it was so slow in pushing back at the beginning um, against uh, the attempts by notably Poland and Hungary, they took this, you know, advantage of this uh, and uh, pushed even further. Now we have this new legal regulation, uh, illegal instrument established, um, uh, which has been uh, approved also by the court. A European court, uh, and whereby uh, if a country is uh, seen to be violating the basic principles of the European Union, then funds can be uh, withdrawn. Mm. Okay, it's very, very, that's in a nutshell, but there are many caveats and things like that, but at least it's there. So hopefully uh, this will ensure that uh, these efforts to, uh, to minimize and water down those basic principles uh, will, will not happen. And of course, all of this now has been overtaken by the uh, most recent developments with, with Ukraine, understandably. Mm -hmm. And uh, the focus of the European Union now is how to uh, ensure that uh, we bring peace back to the European continent. And Stephen, if I can bring you in here, in your opinion, how important is um, these honest reflections and conversations that we're having about the past 50 years in terms of us looking to the next 50 years of EU membership here? I think it gives us time to 
take stock and reflect and draw on some of the lessons from the last 50 years to inform how we go into the period ahead, which I think is going to be probably transformative in terms mm -hmm. uh, of, of the European Union. Um, the world around it is changing very fast, uh, I think faster than we probably have seen at any time since the early 1990s. Um, and internally, I think the European Union will have to respond to those changes. And that probably may be the biggest driver of internal change within the Union, those external events, and that will have, they will have implications for Ireland. Yes, and I think we, we need to guard against uh, this uh, danger of complacency that mm. occurred in the previous years. And I think this is where civil society has a huge role to play in public opinion, uh, organizations like the European movement. Uh, there are some countries within the European Union where civil society uh, is frowned upon and uh, they have a lot of difficulties in developing their activities. I, I mentioned Hungary and Poland. Uh, so uh, the, the role of uh, civil society organizations in uh, ensuring that governments are held to account uh, is absolutely fundamental. And as the European Union expands to include uh, the Western Balkan countries, for example, uh, this will become even more important to strengthen the institutions uh, and to um, uh, give greater uh, voice to public opinion and I mentioned at the beginning the citizens' assemblies that Ireland uh, organized and which are a really important model for the future in addressing all of these uh, challenges facing, facing us. To, to end with Orwin, and it's a slightly separate point, but I think it would be amiss of me not to mention the booklet that's in, that's in, uh, in front of you at the moment, um, which is a booklet, booklet about Michael Sweetman, who, of course, is incredibly important to the, the history of this organization. I was just curious to know your relationship with, with Michael and, and your thoughts and, and uh, experiences yes. with him. Yes, well, I, again, I, I was really, like many of my colleagues, so privileged to have met Michael Sweetman and uh, when he became, he was director of the mm. Irish Council of European Movement and played such a critical role in the preparations for Ireland's accession in the referendum campaign up to his tragic uh, death. I was actually in uh, Brussels uh, when it happened. Uh, I was on this committee of the Council of Europe, uh, the schools essays competition uh, judging these and the news came and it was uh, terrible uh, but before he uh, so tragically passed away he had written a booklet uh, and it's called the common name of Irishman and it the whole idea of this was uh, to help in the debate uh, on Ireland's role in, in Europe and uh, so it was uh, published posthumously by the uh, European movement, uh, and uh, it's yeah, it's it's a lovely little booklet uh, because it shows um, Michael Sweetman's um, vision. Uh, you know, he was very much in the same uh, tradition of Gareth Fitzgerald, and and uh, it was uh, so. It's an important legacy that he left behind. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, listen, Oren, thank you very, very much for 
taking the time out of your day to us to speak with us. Um, it's been absolutely fascinating from looking back on Ireland in the past 50 years, but also the, the EU in a, in a wider sense. So to find out more about what we at European Movement of Ireland get up to for any of our upcoming events, our publications, or to listen back to any of our podcasts, please visit our website, europeanmovement.ie. Again, Erwin, thank you very, very much for joining us today. Um, and Stephen, thank you very much for joining me joining me today as we go back to our regular working day now. Um, I've been Ryan Levis, and you have been listening to EMI's Just the Chats.